Last week, we said that temple is a foundational concept in Scripture, and that the first place that we can actually find it is all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That the Garden of Eden was God's first special dwelling place amongst men. It was His, his holy sanctuary, though it did not have any physical walls and, and was not the stereotypical temple that we often think of. The Bible clearly, both in the original Genesis account and in the times it's referred to later on, views the Garden of Eden as God's first sanctuary. And God places Adam in the garden as his priest to work and keep his sanctuary, and then he gives him a commission that the sanctuary, the temple of the Garden of Eden, is to be expanded out into all of the world, and that that is how Adam would take dominion over the world and, and fill it with the glory and the presence of God. That God's presence wouldn't be confined to one small space, but that it should be filled throughout all of the earth. But, of course, Adam sins, and he fails. And so then as we move forward into the scriptures, we find this same pattern sort of repeating itself on larger and smaller scales. We have in the days of Noah, he receives this ark-like thing, I'm sorry, this temple-like thing in the form of the ark. And God's special presence dwells there. And he gets the same commission after the flood that he has to fill the earth and subdue it with the glory of God in producing image bearers out through in, in every corner of the world. And yet he fails. And then we come to the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm sorry, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they have these little temple building episodes in their lives where they pitch these tabernacles and the presence of God is said to dwell there. They build altars and perform priestly functions and they get that same commission, though this time in the form of a promise that God will multiply their offspring into all of the earth. But they were not able to, to, to carry this out to fruition in their days. And so we come to the days of Israel. And Israel is instructed to build a, a physical temple in the city of Jerusalem. First it was the tabernacle, and then it became the temple. And in the very nature of how God designed that tabernacle and temple, he was preaching to them that original commission that Adam got, that the temple should be synonymous with all of the universe. Because within that one temple, you had sort of the first section representing the, the sea and the land, and the second section representing the skies and the heavens above, and the third section representing the, the heavenly places where God himself dwells, all of the universe in this one temple. And yet Israel rebels and they sin and they also fail to carry out the commission given to them by God. And that's where we left off last week. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up in the days of the prophets. Because the prophets step into the midst of this situation with Israel's having failed to expand the temple and having been cast out of the land. The land which is actually described as Eden in many different places especially in the prophets, but the prophets step into this situation and they start to pronounce that God is not done yet. Though Israel has failed, there is another temple coming, and they start to, to speak of it. And so what we're going to do, there are about 16-ish passages that are relevant to this. I'm not going to take you through all 16. We're going to do about four or five, very quickly, little snippets of some of the places where the prophets are prophesying about this future temple that God's going to inaugurate. And we just want to pull out a few general principles about what we can expect this temple to look like as we get into the New Testament. And so the first place that I want to go is to Isaiah chapter 4. I think I have, let's see if this is going to work. Do we have the, do we have, yes, this is the first time I've ever tried this. So I'm excited it's working. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. I think I only put verse 5 up there, but I'm going to start all the way in verse 2. Hear what Isaiah has to say as he begins to speak of this coming temple. In that day, the branch of the Lord, and if you know your prophets, the branch of the Lord, that's code for Messiah, 
shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and, the, and who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away all the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then, this is the key, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all of her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and a shining flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Now, you may not initially think that you saw a temple in there, but take a, a slightly closer look. The key word in there, and I think it's on the screen there, is canopy. And canopy is a word that is often used to describe the, especially the tabernacle, the, the tent-like structure that was stretched over the special place of God's dwelling. And so what Isaiah is saying is that the days are coming when the Lord is going to cleanse Jerusalem. He's going to cleanse the inhabitants of Israel. And he's actually going to expand his canopy, his special dwelling, over all of Jerusalem. Now, you remember in the past, you had the city of Jerusalem, but the temple was a smaller part within the city. So you could be in Jerusalem without being in the temple. But Isaiah says, one day, the canopy, the temple of the Lord, is going to stretch out over the whole city, so that to be in Jerusalem is to be in the temple of God. We'll come back to that because the prophets are going to say more about it. Zechariah says a bunch about the temple in his first two chapters. Let's look at a couple of verses. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, that's temple, shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to build my sanctuary again in the midst of Jerusalem. But this time, the measuring line, that is how large it is, is not just going to be stretched over a portion of Jerusalem. It's going to be stretched out over all of Jerusalem. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say this. And I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said to him, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now what do we see there? Zechariah specifically prophesies, or should I say the angel says specifically to Zechariah that Jerusalem will be as a city without walls one day. So now we're told that the, the canopy, the temple of the Lord, will dwell over all of Jerusalem and that it shall be a, as a city without walls and that the glory of the Lord will be in the midst of the whole city. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. What's Jeremiah saying there? He starts by saying, in those days which are to come, they will no more talk about the ark of the Lord. And what was the ark of the Lord representative of? 
It was the throne where God sat in the midst of the temple. And they're saying there's no longer going to be that ark where God is seated in a physical temple in the Holy of Holies. Because the presence of the Lord shall be throughout all of Jerusalem. There's not going to be a need for this special singular spot in the city for the Lord's throne to dwell. It's going to be everywhere within the city. And then we come to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. I'm sorry. I think we're going to stop there before we go on. Yes. The last thing I want to talk about from the prophets before we make some general observations is the final vision that Ezekiel gives us at the end of his, his very long prophecy. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel is taken and he sees a vision of this temple that the other prophets have spoken of. He sees a vision of it. Now it's nine chapters and it's packed full of detail. We do not have time to walk through those nine chapters and, and read them and, and plumb their depths. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm just going to make five general observations, going to pull out five observations about the temple that Ezekiel sees that will hopefully line up with what the rest of the prophets have said and provide us with a few extra tidbits that will set us up for what's to come in the New Testament. So the first observation that we can pull out of Ezekiel's vision of this coming temple is found in Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 2. And there we read, In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So what do we see right there? Ezekiel is taken onto a high mountain and he looks down and he's, he's looking at the temple. And how does he describe it? It's a city. The temple is like a city. And then we come to the very end of his vision, sort of the bookends, Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 35, and we see this. The circumference of that city that he saw shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is in the entire city. That's the first observation, that he sees a temple that is like a city. The second observation is that though you, when you're tempted to, or sorry, when you first read through the vision, you're tempted to think, and this is what many dispensationalists have said, that this is a vision of a physical temple that will be dropped down in literal Jerusalem, modern day Jerusalem someday. A physical temple is going to be rebuilt because that's what Ezekiel saw. But if you pay careful attention, there are several, and I'm only going to go through two, but there are several fa uh, sort of considerations in the vision that would actually lead us to think that it's a non-physical temple that he's seeing, that it's an apocalyptic vision, sort of a metaphor of a temple. What's the first one? Well, the first one is that if, you pay, if you're a very careful reader of Ezekiel, it seems like this temple is actually hanging in midair. What do I mean? Well, all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 11, God spoke judgment upon the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. And he's given a vision, and he looks at the actual temple that was in Jerusalem at the time. And he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and go rest upon the mountain of God, which represents heaven. So he sees a vision of God's glory departing from the temple of Israel and going to sit on the mountain of God. And then all the way for, fast forwarding to Ezekiel chapter 37, he sees that same glory that was dwelling in the heavenly mountain now come down again, the presence of the Lord where his temple is to be. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26, oh, I forgot to write these out, my bad. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 through 28, 
The Lord says the following, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary, my temple, over them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people when my sanctuary is over them forevermore. So Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord come down from the heavenly place, and his temple dwells over all of the people. And Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, the temple vision, are the vision of this temple that he saw coming down that's resting over the people of the Lord. It's representing God's presence over his people. It's not, temples don't hang in the air physically. It's an apocalyptic vision. The second consideration that would lead us to believe this is a non-physical temple is that if you pay careful attention, Ezekiel gets all kinds of measurements from this temple. But unlike in Solomon's days, none of the measurements are vertical. They're all horizontal measurements. Now why is that significant? Because what feature of a structure do you typically associate with vertical measurements? Walls. And yet, no vertical measurements. Solomon's temple had vertical measurements. This one does not. And isn't that what we already saw in one of the prophets, prophesying that this temple would have no walls? But how can you have a physical temple with no walls? Well, you can't. That's another consideration, that this is actually not a physical temple that he's looking at. Third observation, so third thing that we see when Ezekiel sees this vision of the temple is that there's actually a river of life that is running through the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 1, we read this. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, where the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So there's a river that flows out of the temple and gives life to the creation around it. The fourth observation about this temple is that there is also a tree. In fact, it's a series of trees in this vision that are scattered all throughout the banks of the river. Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Hold on to that last phrase. So we have a river and we have trees that are present. And then fifth and finally, fifth observation about this temple is that there is a prince who actually rules in the midst of this temple. Uh, we're not going to go through a bunch of verses, but the prince is mentioned. There's a gate that he has to open. There are feasts that he is in charge of. Uh, he is declared as the Lord of this sanctuary, and he is clearly running the show. There's a prince. Now, that was a very inadequate run-through of the prophets. Uh, I wish we could have spent a lot more time on it. But let's, as, before we move into the Gospels, let's pull out three key things that the prophets have told us that we should expect of this coming temple that is going to fulfill the plan of God. First, the temple expands to encompass all of Jerusalem. Now, that should raise a question in your mind based upon what we saw last week. Because everything we said last week is that this expanding temple plan that God has inaugurated is supposed to do what? Expand to the whole world. And yet the prophets are saying it's going to expand out to all of Jerusalem. Hold that tension in your mind. We're not going to resolve it until we get to Revelation. But just notice that. Second, the temple is non-physical, as we just said. So we have a temple that's going to expand out into all of Jerusalem. It's going to be non-physical. And third, this temple actually calls Eden to mind because all of, many of the features 
that Ezekiel saw in this temple called to mind the very things that were present in Eden. There was a, a river, it's on a mountain, there are trees that give life, there are all kinds of precious stones there, and there are many other considerations or connections between this temple and Eden. So that's what the prophets lead us to believe is coming. Some sort of temple that's going to fill Jerusalem in a non-physical way, but they don't give us much more than that. And then we have 400 years of silence where God does not speak at all to the people. And in the fullness of time, the Messiah, the branch, comes. He is made flesh. And John comments upon that event, and he tells us that the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The word he uses there is literally, in your English translations, it'll say he dwelt among us. But the word there is actually he literally tabernacled or templed, if we could stretch it just a little bit, amongst us. So inherent in the coming of Jesus is the concept of his templing or tabernacling. And that sets us up for the fundamental axiom that is going to control everything that the Gospels and, and really all of the epistles as well have to say about God's temple. And it's this. Jesus' body is the temple. It's that simple. Jesus' body is the temple that was spoken of. Now, that leaves all sorts of questions, and we're going to hopefully answer them. But that should be a little bit confusing at first. Jesus' body is the temple. I, I don't know how that connects with everything that we've said so far. But let me give you first a couple of general considerations as to why it makes sense that Jesus' temple is the body, Jesus' body is the temple, and then we're going to go through some direct statements of Jesus in the Gospels and see what he had to say about the nature of temple. So, why does it make sense that Jesus' body can be described as a temple? Well, first, temple is where God dwells with man. It's that I mean, we've seen that plenty of times. So the temple is God's special dwelling among man, and the Son of God, God Himself becoming incarnate, is God dwelling amongst man. So there's a very surface level connection right there just based upon the language. The temple is where God dwells and Christ is God with man. Secondly, temple is synonymous with creation in the scriptures. When God created back in Eden, he places a, a temple. When, when God creates the nation of Israel using the language of Genesis to describe the creation of Israel, he places a temple in their midst. Every time that God does a new work of creation, he seemingly puts a temple and what we are told in the New Testament is that Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. We see that in many ways. His, his healing miracles are, are meant to be a reversal of the original creation's curse as he brings in a new creation. He comes in and defeats Satan, the one who, uh, who ruined the first creation through tempting Adam and Eve. And Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. And so... The, the New Testament clearly presents us with Jesus being a new creation. And so it only makes sense that every time that there's a new creation, there is a new temple. So let's look at some of the statements of Jesus and see what he had to say about the temple. Jesus over and over again, just as the New Testament announces the, the fact that the old creation is dying away and the new creation is coming in, Jesus, right alongside of that, is going to say over and over again that the old temple is passing away and that the new temple, although he leaves it slightly undefined, the new temple has come with the incarnation. Let's look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. This is the well-known story 
where Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, there's a lot more significance than, than maybe meets the eye on the surface there. Because Jesus goes into this old temple. Th think about this for a moment. He is coming to the physical temple in Israel that God had planted there as the sign of what Israel was to do. They were commissioned to take the temple, the presence of God, and expand it everywhere. And they have sinned and they have rebelled over and over and over again. And Jesus marches straight into that temple. And what does he see? An instance uh, that epitomizes Israel's own rebellion and disregard for God. People have turned the temple into a place of, of profiting for their own personal gain. And he steps into the midst of that temple and he quotes words from Isaiah 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Let's flip to Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 56 for just a moment. Because if we understand what Isaiah was saying back in Isaiah chapter 56, we can see what Jesus is really saying when he quotes this verse. Isaiah, after he has denounced the, the Israelites for their idolatrous ways and their disregard of the temple of the Lord, says this. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a, bare, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses the things that pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to them, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. What is Isaiah saying? He is announcing judgment upon the Israelites and saying, This temple that you have taken for granted, here's what the Lord says. One day a new temple is coming. It's going to have new characteristics. And now those who were once not welcomed within the sanctuary for ceremonial reasons, they will be brought near. And those of you who are welcomed but who profane my Sabbaths and my statutes, you will be cast out. Isaiah was prophesying a change in the temple. And Jesus steps right into the midst of that, that old temple, quotes this verse, and then right after that, what do we read? He goes out and brings into the temple the lame and the disabled, those who were not allowed, into the temple, and he heals them. What is Jesus saying? that what Isaiah spoke of is here fulfilled. This temple is passing away. And the new temple that Isaiah spoke of, where, where the lame and the, the weak and sinners are welcomed, that's here. So that's the first instance where Jesus addresses temple. And he says that the old temple is passing away, and he is bringing the new temple in to bear. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, and speaking of the, in the midst of the controversy with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, he says... I tell you something greater than the temple, the physical temple, is here. I tell you something greater than the physical temple is here. 
Now, how can that be the case? How is the Lord Jesus greater than the physical temple that dwelt in the midst of Israel? Because all of the functions of the temple that the Lord had placed within them were fulfilled in Christ's coming himself. How so? The temple was the place of sacrifice. And yet Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 tells us that by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are set apart. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. In terms of, of priesthood, Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 24 through 25, the apostle who is writing to the Hebrews speaks of the Lord Jesus as the ultimate high priest that all of the old priests pointed to and says, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus fulfills the sacrificial functions, the function of the priesthood, and the temple was meant to be, as we've said, the place of God's dwelling. And now we are told that all the fullness of deity dwells in him. And we see that on the Mount of Transfiguration. The fullness of the glory of God shines forth in Jesus Christ. And we are told with Paul that, that the glory of God shines eternally on the face of Jesus Christ. So all of the functions of the old temple are fulfilled in Jesus. And so when he steps forward and says something greater than the temple is here, he's implicitly announcing that temple is going to go. The new one is here. And then we come to John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. This is in the midst of John's recording of the wedding of Canaan. I'm sorry, of his cleansing of the temple. And we read, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered all that he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now why is this significant? Because Jesus, in this, in this episode, when he makes the statement, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he's sort of doing a double entendre, a play on words. He's looking at the physical temple. He says, destroy this temple. If it comes to the ground, in three days I will raise it back up again. And yet when he says, destroy this temple, not only is he referring to the physical temple in Israel, he's of course referring to his body. You destroy my body, in three days I will raise it up again. But what's he saying? This temple, this physical one in Israel, it's coming to the ground. And in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. But not that temple, the new temple. And what is raised up three days later? His body. His body is the new temple. And then finally, in terms of the Gospels, Jesus actually speaks of his resurrection body as the cornerstone that is mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament, the cornerstone that is the, the foundation of God's house. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 44, we're not going to read all of it for the sake of time, but Jesus uh, gives the parable of the tenants who, who go out into the, the field and the worthless servant buries the, tenant, sorry, buries the uh, money that he was given and does not use it profitably. And then when we come to verses 42 through 44, in summarizing that parable, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now the full significance of that statement of Jesus cannot be understood unless we go back and actually look at the psalm that he's quoting from very briefly. Psalm 118. In the 118th Psalm, David is writing, and he says the following words, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may come and enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This gate of the Lord, the righteous, shall enter through it. Now, what gate was he referring to? The temple. And I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, David is saying that there is a cornerstone that has been, sorry, a stone that has been rejected that has now become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Of God's house. Everything in the context of this psalm is set in the context of the temple. And so David is, Jesus quotes this psalm and says, that stone that David spoke of that would become the foundation piece of the temple of God, that's me. That's my body. And when I am raised up, I am laid as the cornerstone of the new temple, the house of the living God. And then he makes a second allusion in those verses. We can put them back on the screen for just a second. In those verses, Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. His second allusion, he says this. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is an allusion to Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees a stone that rises up and expands and destroys all of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus equates both of those passages in, in this one pericope. And he says, I have become the cornerstone of the temple... And then he alludes to the fact that this, this stone, this temple, as Daniel said, will expand and it will increase in size and it will crush all of the kingdoms of the earth. And so that's a very brief run through the Gospels. I don't think we have time to go through John chapter 4 and look at the woman of, at the well and Jesus is claiming that he is the water of life which goes back to the rivers in Eden and in Ezekiel's vision. But that's what we see in terms of the Gospels. Jesus comes and says, my body is the temple. It's the temple that was spoken of by all of the prophets. The old temple is passing away. The new temple is about to be established. But there are still some unanswered questions. How do we fit into all this? And how on earth is Jesus' body going to expand into all the world? Because that's the goal. The temple is supposed to expand. So we've got Jesus' body as now the temple, and that makes sense. It's the dwelling place of God. But how's it going to expand? And so we leave the Gospels, and we go through into the epistles, and Peter and Paul actually take up this very topic, and they'll explain it to us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8, through 8 is sort of the classicus locus of this exact subject. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to Christians, and he says this, As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now notice what Peter says there. He's speaking to Christians, and he says, you are like stones, living stones, being put together one by one. And as your stones are put together, you are building the house of God. Christians are building the house of God through their being made Christians, and when you continue to lay stones into a structure, what does the structure do? It expands, and it gets bigger. But, wait a second, Jesus' body, his body is the temple. We are being built up as a temple, so is it, is it Jesus that's expanding, or is it us that's, that's expanding? And, and the connection between those two is found in Paul's analogy of the body. We are the body of Christ is what he says. And so as Jesus' body is the temple and we are united to him through faith, we become a part of that body. And every time a new believer is converted and regenerated and made alive in Christ, the body of Christ begins to expand and to push out and to get larger and larger. And that's where the expansion comes in. Now, I think for the sake of time, I was going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and show how Paul uh, compares the church to a garden temple that is being built up. But for the sake of time, we're going to have to pass by that. So, we now have the sort of, some of the connections are starting to come together. We've seen that Jesus' body is the temple that's spoken of. It's a non-physical temple. And that we, through faith, are united to him. And so now the temple of God is being built and it's being expanded out into all the world. And just before we jump into Revelation, please notice that just like Adam and Noah and the patriarchs and Israel were told to, they were given the commission to expand the temple, Jesus does not ascend into the heavens until he actually gives that same commission to his church, the Great Commission that you will go out into the world and make disciples. Go out into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The church is to fulfill the commission through the power of Christ that was given to Adam and to all of those men beforehand and to the nation of Israel. And that's what we're in the process of right now. We are being built up as the temple of God. But do we know how this ends? There's still a, a number of loose ends that need to be connected here that, that haven't necessarily been tied off in the canon of Scripture if we just examine the Gospels and the Epistles. And John, at the very end of the canon in Revelation, is given a vision. It's the last vision that he receives. And interestingly enough, it's a vision of temple. So let's turn to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I want you to turn there because we're going to be there for the next, this will probably take about 10 minutes and we'll be done. For about the next 10 minutes. It's too much to type out, so I didn't actually put it on the screen for you. But I want you to look at this because what John sees here at the very end of Revelation is the summation of everything that we've been looking at in terms of temple so far. 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly scan through not all of these two chapters, but just portions of it and make some general observations because I want to just lay this vision before you very quickly. And then we're going to go back and look at a couple of very specific things that I think will hopefully be something you've never considered before. So John gets a vision, and we read at the beginning of chapter 21 the following words. Then I saw the heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So, first observation, John is seeing the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Then we keep reading. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Second observation, this is clearly symbolic imagery. The city is the bride. Okay? That has to be symbolic. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Third observation, whatever it is that John is seeing, it's a temple. How? Because it's where God dwells. That's exactly what John says. This place, this, this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, is the dwelling place of God. And so it's a temple. And then we're going to skip all the way down to verse 9, chapter 21, verse 9. This is a continuation of the same vision that he's having. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bulls of the last seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. That's exactly what happened to Ezekiel. And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and the twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And so we see that John is, is seeing exactly what Ezekiel saw. He's carried up into a high mountain and he looks down and he sees a, a city that is also a temple. So this is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel saw. There are gates just like the, the temple uh, that Ezekiel saw. There are precious stones, as we're going to see down here. Uh, if we skip down to verse 19, the foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, then sapphire, then agite, then emerald, then onyx, and on and on it goes. Just like Eden and just like Ezekiel's vision. And then we skip down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So this city has no temple. Why? Because it is the temple. There's no special temple within it because that's exactly what it is. And then skipping to verse, uh, sorry, chapter 22 and verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the land through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And so this temple city has a river, just like Eden, just like all the previous temples, and the tree of life is also present. So what do we see? That this thing is both a city, a temple, and a garden. That's what John sees, a city, a temple, and a garden. Now, to wrap this up, this is where I think, hopefully at least, it'll all tie together. First, I want you to look very specifically back in chapter 21 at verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and its width, 
and its height are equal. Its length, its width, and its height are equal. What geometric shape has an equal length, width, and height? A cube. Do you know the only other place in the scriptures where a cube is ever mentioned? It's the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the original temple was a cube. And yet the whole city is now described as being cube-shaped. Why? Because the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, has now expanded out and become the entirety of the new city of Jerusalem. But also go back to the very beginning of chapter 21. Think about what he says here. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So, okay, we're looking at the new heavens and the new earth. And then the next thing he says is, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem. So which one's he looking at? Is he looking at the new heavens and the new earth, or is he just looking at the new city of Jerusalem? And if you pay very careful attention to this pattern in Revelation, whenever it says, I saw this, and then I saw this in the very next verse, the, the, the second thing that he saw is an explanation of the first thing that he saw. So what's he saying? That the new heavens and the new earth is the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we often ask the question, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So, like, is God going to make a new physical earth and then he's going to be in heaven? And are we going to be on earth? Are we going to travel back and forth between the two of them? How exactly does that work? Well, no. The new heavens and the new earth is the new Jerusalem. That's all that there is. So what does that mean? That this new Jerusalem, which is the temple of God, has now become synonymous with all that there is. It's become synonymous with all that there is. And in chapter 22, it immediately says that if you go directly outside of this city, where are you? You're where the people of hell are. Outside of the gates, that's where the dogs are. That's where those who are being tortured are. So you're either in the New Jerusalem, or if you step right out of it, you're in hell. Now, we don't believe that hell is literally located right next to the New Jerusalem. It's a symbolic imagery. But the point is, there's only two options. If you're not in the New Jerusalem, you're in hell. So the New Jerusalem has filled and become synonymous with all of the universe. What does that mean? That Christ has accomplished the commission that was given to Adam all the way back in the garden. The special dwelling of God, his temple, the new Jerusalem, has become the entirety of the universe. The Lord Jesus has accomplished the commission. And what is the new Jerusalem? It's the church. God dwells amongst his people. This is what all of the scripture has been building to. That one day, the glory of God will fill all of the universe until that's all that there is. And the evil ones will be cast aside. So, very quickly, I know I've gone maybe a minute or two longer than last time. Just a couple of applications of what, how, how might this actually apply to us in any meaningful sense. Well, first, I want you to consider the wisdom of God in Scripture. What kind of book that was written across thousands of years by all these different people can lay all these little themes back in the garden in Genesis 1 and then carry them through all the way over thousands and thousands of years to culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ so that what was originally given to Adam is now fulfilled in him. The, the wisdom of God in Scripture. And 
I don't feel like I've done this justice. We've honestly covered like a tenth of the material that you could. It's so deep and it's so wide. And this is just one of those little strands that runs all the way through Scripture. There are almost countless of them. The beauty and the wisdom of God in Scripture. Consider that. Second, consider the person that is required to accomplish a task like this. I mean, this task was originally given to Adam. And he had no corruption of nature. He was made upright. He didn't have to fight against sin. He had no hindrances there. He, he was put in the best possible position to accomplish the task that God had given to him. And he failed. And he couldn't do it. And then all of the, the, the righteous men that come after him, like, like Abraham and like Noah, they can't do it either. God gives every opportunity for mankind to show that he can accomplish this task of filling the earth with God's glory. And every single time they fail. And so who has to come and do it? None other than the Lord Jesus, God incarnate himself. That's who it takes to accomplish this task. No other than God could fulfill this. Third, I hope that you look at the Great Commission in a slightly new light now. We got a lot of wonderful teaching and wonderful application on the Great Commission. And I hope that this is just now one more layer to it. Because when you are fulfilling the Great Commission, what are you doing? You are assisting in the work of expanding the temple of God. Because every time that a disciple is brought into the kingdom, one more stone is laid, and then one more stone is laid, and then one more stone is laid, and the image of God is spread further and further out in, and, until at the very end, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are worshiping around the throne. And when you're looking at your children, when you're discipling your children, when you're discipling your spouse, every time that you are engaged in the proclamation of the gospel, you are engaged in the filling of the earth with the glory of God and the expansion of his temple. And then finally, before we end, consider yourself as a stone. If you're in Christ, you have been hewn out as a, as a precious stone and, and laid into this perfect and pure and holy temple. And so if you can come each week and hear from the word of God and hear as it, as it rebukes your sin and not desire to be made as a pure and precious stone in Christ's temple, then we have to question your salvation. If you can have your sin openly exposed and know that there are spots and wrinkles that have to be dealt with, and then you can come back next week and have made no effort whatsoever to deal with the specific sins that were called out, then there is a place for you. But it's right outside with the dogs. The child of God looks at the glory of God and says, I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be a spotless stone so that the temple of God may be seen for what it is, the perfect work of the triune God in rescuing sinners from their sin. Let's pray.